Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with Dr. Kristen Wanyuwu. But first, what's got your attention, Harlan? Well, Howie, there's a really important paper that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine yesterday that uh, I think is worthy of note, and, and not just for the men. And the reason I say that is because it was a study of screening uh, strategies for prostate cancer. And, and it's important because we're trying to figure out how to prevent cancer. We've got lots of different ways to screen. And, and in this case, you know, we have a blood test that's imperfect at best that people take frequently, men of a certain age take frequently. And yet there's still controversy about whether or not it's beneficial. You know, it's sort of a little bit like mammography uh, in the sense that, that there's people who feel strongly on all sides of this. But the question is whether measuring a prostate-specific antigen, uh, PSA people may know about, PSA screening, you know, can actually decrease the rate of cancer. But it goes beyond that, which is, you know, so people end up having an elevated uh, PSA, elevated prostate-specific antigen, and then what do you do? You know, it's uh, it gets elevated, maybe like above, for people who are in the know, you know, say above three, and then should you be watchful weighted? Should, in other words, should we just monitor, check it every year? Should we do an MRI scan? And, and under what circumstances might we progress from an MRI scan to a biopsy? And again, you know, men of a certain age, it's pretty common for them to have undergone biopsies of their prostate in, in an effort to sort of discover whether or not they have cancer. And there's still a lot of questions about whether that makes any, any difference. So in this study, they stayed almost 40,000 people who are 50 to 60 years old uh, who underwent uh, regular prostate-specific antigen, PSA screening. And those who had three or higher underwent uh, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, something in your field, Howie, of the prostate. And then a third of them were randomly as assigned to uh, a group that underwent systematic biopsy as, as well as any targeted biopsy. So what they did was a targeted biopsy is I see something, I'm going to try to take a piece of that. A, a systematic biopsy is to say like, well, let's start punching holes in different parts of the prostate and see if we discover anything. And uh, the remaining were just uh, underwent a, you know, MRI target biopsy only. The primary outcome was, you know, who had clinically insignificant prostate cancer and then who had significant prostate cancer. And so the interesting thing was, first of all, the, of the, for example, uh, you, you know, in the whole group, there weren't that many cases of prostate cancer. It was 0.6% uh, of those who were in this uh, experimental group that uh, underwent uh, the MRI and then they also did the systematic biopsies, uh, you know, ended up with a diagnosis of clinically insignificant prostate cancer compared to 1.2% in the reference group. Um, and also with clin clinically significant cancer, there was no really difference between the groups. There was no significant difference between the groups. And so basically, people were saying as a conclusion here that you could avoid this systematic biopsies, where you're just going blindly in different parts of the prostate in favor of an MRI-directed targeted biopsy for uh, screening and early detection. It makes a lot of sense. So basically saying if, if, if you see something, it's worth getting. If you don't see anything, then just kind of going into the, into the prostate just because there's a high PSA test and just sort of sampling, randomly sampling different places doesn't really 
doesn't really pay off. Uh, I don't know. What, what did you think of this paper, Howie? I know you took a look at it. So, yeah. So, I, you know, first of all, I think what strikes me as amazing is that we're 35 years into prostate-specific antigen screening, and we still don't really know precisely what we're doing. And it's useful for our listeners to know prostate cancer is somewhat unusual in that it is practically an expected disease of aging in men. If you live long enough, most men will have some prostate cancer in their prostate gland at death, but it won't be killing them. Maybe we shouldn't even be calling it cancer, right? Because I mean, the word cancer is so right, charged. Right, right. You know. It's a disease of aging is that these cells start to look a little unusual, but in most cases, it's not going to kill them. But the surgery is, even under the best surgical hands, is a huge intervention. It leaves a, a large number with some degree of incontinence. It leaves an even larger number with impotence. Uh, there is a risk of mortality. It's a long recovery. And so our goal should be to operate only on the people for which the prostate cancer is actually gonna kill them or otherwise interfere with their life. And this paper gets us a little bit closer to avoiding doing some of those surgeries and some of those pre-interventions that really aren't necessary. But again, 35 years in, and we're slowly making this progress. And this is what science is. It takes time. Yeah, and I, I just sort of like the lesson to say that, you know, screening, if you've got a reason, you see something, you want to see whether or not, you know, it represents prostate cancer, that, that might be a good thing to do. But but when you don't see anything sort of blindly going into the prostate, you're just like taking 20, 10, 12 punctures in order to try to see whether you can just by by luck find something. You know, it never made sense to me anyway. But but anyway, it's good to see a study out that helps guide things. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to share this just out yeah, yesterday. No, I thought it was useful. And, and look, we've been doing MR research on the prostate for over 30 years right now. Um, and it's, it's not as quick as people think it is, but hopefully a step in the right direction. Yep, yep. Hey, let's get on to our guest. Dr. Kristen Wanyawu is an ophthalmologist and associate professor of ophthalmology and visual science at the Yale School of Medicine. She specializes in vitreoretinal surgery and her research focuses on diabetic retinopathy and access to eye care. Dr. Wanyawu is the principal investigator at the NIH-funded Sight-Saving Engagement and Evaluation in New Haven, or SCENE, program, which seeks to decrease preventable blindness and diabetic retinopathy. Dr. Wanyawu is also the founder of Eiffel, a luxury lifestyle brand that designs products for eye doctors that we'll hopefully talk a little more about soon. She received her bachelor's degree in African-American studies and biochemistry at the University of Michigan. She received her medical degree and MBA at the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School, respectively. She completed her Master of Health Science through Yale's YCCI Junior Faculty Scholars Program. So I want to start off by talking about your core clinical and research interest, which is diabetic retinopathy. We have, you know, an audience that, you know, from my point of view, learns an awful lot about individuals, but sometimes they don't learn a lot about what medicine is like. And diabetic retinopathy is a very serious and increasing problem. Can you tell us a little about what is it, what can we do to prevent it, and how do we monitor it? Sure. Diabetic retinopathy is one of the devastating complications of diabetes. 
And the risk factors for diabetic retinopathy or glycemic control, duration of disease, and then a whole host of other things. Some of them that are systems, metabolic um, risk factors, but also the social determinants of health and the life things that we know, you know, cause advanced disease and in other areas. Um, I became interested in diabetic retinopathy when I fell in love with the eye. Um, and then I also have a spirit of, of activism and advocacy and, and social justice. And to me, I was able to marry my love of ophthalmology with something that had that was available for me to be able to use some of the skills that I had had to fight for people to fight for their best vision. And so I spend a lot of my time doing that and I get to pair all of that together. And it's just, it's just a really awesome gift. I'm a surgeon. I'm a vitreal retinal surgeon, and the reason that I pursued beyond a residency in ophthalmology, so ophthalmology residency requires a year of internship, three years of ophthalmology, and then to become a retina surgeon, you have to do two more. And so I added those two because I really wanted to be at the very severe levels of diabetic eye disease, and so you need surgery if it gets to be that bad, and I wanted to be able to treat that whole spectrum of, of disease, but hopefully through my work, put myself out of business. Since you touched on it now, I want to just briefly touch on the activism point that you mentioned, because you became activated uh, during, I think, your undergraduate years um, when the University of Michigan was facing or maybe had just faced the affirmative action case. Can you just briefly talk about that? Because I think it informs a lot of our other dialogue. Sure. So I was actually an intervener for the case in high school. Wow. Um, from the perspective of a an underrepresented student who would benefit from the critical mass of black and brown students and that would be able to benefit from that environment in school, honestly. And so just an intervener in a case is, is someone that comes from a different perspective. So not exactly the plaintiff, not exactly the defendant, but someone who says, wait, I have a stake in this game too. And you know, so I was uh, approached by an organization um, to be able to participate in that. And so when I got to University of Michigan, I wasn't sure I was gonna go to U of M, but I lived in Ann Arbor. So when I got to University of Michigan, it was a natural extension for me to kind of join the activism that was going on about access to education, about, you know, diversity, about, you know, all of the things that were important to me. Um, and it just made sense. So I spent a lot of time in the Black Student Union. We organized buses to D.C. We organized protests around the, you know, administrative offices. And my mom used to always tell me she was, I'm the first doctor in my family. And she would say, I don't think doctors do that. <laughs> and I told her, I was like, well, this one does. And, you know, I think that's kind of how I've lived. It's kind of how I've moved through the world in the work that I do. And, and the people that I gravitate towards kind of have that feeling and their work that they do is, is bigger than treating patients. And the way that I am an activist is through my disparities work, through my health equity lens, through kind of thinking about how people access care. And it's just an honor to be able to do that at, at such a high level, honestly. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you was about the issue of blindness in this country, because, you know, I sort of have the feeling that that people don't think about it that much anymore. I mean, there was a period of time where 
where I don't know, it, it was sort of more on the radar, and, and especially with, associated with diabetes. I mean, as we've gotten better in treatment of diabetes, I, I would have thought blindness has gone down in terms of a, a major threat to folks. But I wonder if you can just give us a sense of like, what is this state of, of sight in the country today? I mean, is it a major threat? What, what is it that is, is happening with regard to the trends in, in sight in the United States today? I, you know, we're just talking about this and we talk about it in terms of social determinants of health, actually, and we talk about it and who has access. And, you know, the number one cause of, of preventable blindness actually in the world is is undiagnosed refractive error, honestly. It's like people that need glasses that don't get them. Hmm. Um, so there's still a fair amount of that. Very small, but there's still a fair amount of that. And then with regards to diabetic retinopathy, which is is my expertise, as we have gotten better with glycemic control, we definitely have gotten better decreasing the amount of preventable blindness. But what we also see is, is that there's a chasm between who has access to great care and all of the technological advances and the new generations of medications and who can manage their uh, glycemic control and then who cannot. And you know the blindness that is from diabetes is disproportionately in Black communities. It's in you know Latino, Latina communities, and it's in Indigenous populations. It's in um, places with low resources, and, and you know there are clear reasons for that. And so while, and you know, what I've noticed is is that while the rest of the community is moving on to this other stage of management, there's a large subset of folks that to me it feels left behind. Uh, recently, I was giving a talk at the American Diabetes Association, which I've become active in. And, you know, these wonderful researchers were talking about all their advances and they have great videos on how they use their continuous glucose monitoring to, you know, make sure they stay in range. And it's just, you know, the technology that they had available to them to allow them to have a more normal life. I found myself feeling very envious, honestly, because I think about my patients that I see in my clinic that I'm that have you know retinopathy that are losing sight in their 30s, and there are so many of those things that aren't available to them. I think that the um, organizations like the American Diabetes Association have changed to try to focus more on equity. And the policies, I think that's big P. I mean, we've heard a lot about, you know, insulin costs and things like that. But I think also access to technology because continuous glucose monitoring is a game changer. And so, you know, access to technology is something that's really going to be important, too. And we will see even further decrease in, you know, blindness, amputations and otherwise once we're able to kind of, one, say out loud that these are the chasms that we have to get the appropriate data and all those different spheres about where we're missing and what are the levers that we need to be able to to move that around and then you know three to be able to be in community and engage community about how we can create solutions that work better there um because i you know i have i have an antidote i have a conversation with a 19 year old who was in the juvenile justice system and he had recently, you know, come for a check for his eyes, diabetic retinopathy, didn't have it. He had improved his A1C being in juvenile justice system by five points, better A1C down 5%, which is crazy um, and amazing. Perfect. Great for his heart. But what he said about continuous glucose monitoring was that 
he didn't want chips inside of him or, you know, the technology wasn't something that he was interested in. And so what I explained to him about, I explained to him and sent him to the website of all these other folks that are living these lives with these wonderful devices to talk to him about what's available. But it's just, it's there, right? It's in those conversations, it's in community, it's figuring out how we can get the best to folks that would benefit from it the most. You know, I was in a, a talk this morning where uh, Rob Califf, uh, who's the FDA commissioner, was uh, reflecting on a few things, but he, he quoted something from, he said, he thought it was from Ed Young from an Atlantic article where he said, technologic solution walks into the penthouses of America and diseases seep into the cracks in America. And sometimes these advances that help prevent things, you know, only do go to the penthouses and not not to folks who, who could need it most. You wrote in one of your pieces, in our health system, black, Latinx, and indigenous persons and those with less socioeconomic privilege go blind at disproportionate rate compared with white, more privileged individuals. It's what you're reflecting on now, but can you give us just some sense of what is the proportion? What is the extra risk that's borne by black, Latinx, indigenous persons and those with less socioeconomic privilege? What, what is that multiple? How much more at risk are they of going blind in this country than those who are more privileged? Good question. You know, when we look at the numbers it's hard to tell exactly, but usually about two or three more times, honestly. Mm. Um, and oftentimes the- That's big, that's a big number. Way that we see it is also different, so yeah. And we oftentimes don't see it as soon. So those folks are oftentimes diagnosed later in stages as well, in the stage of the disease. So by the time you get to them, you're already further along in the, the disease process as well, which is also you know pretty devastating. So I wanted to pivot just a tiny bit to a paper that you wrote um, describing the current state of ophthalmology faculty in the United States. And you pointed out that ophthalmology is the third worst in terms of representation of underrepresented minorities. Um, and what struck me about it is that the two worst specialties were orthopedic surgery and my specialty, radiology. Um, and I'm, I'm very aware, it's a visibly aware problem in radiology. Um, but I'm curious to know what you think, it, how are you diagnosing the problem and what are the solutions? Because I know you're part of helping think about those solutions. Yeah, you know, there's a large, well, not a large body of work, but a long body of work in ophthalmology to try to figure out pipeline. Um, that's the where we spend the most time. The National Medical Association, which is the Black Doctors Association ophthalmology section, has a 20-year-old partnership um, with the NIH where they bring um, those underrepresented in um, medicine and also those that are um, doing work in disparities and equity um, to the national meeting every year. They introduce them to the program officers in the NIH. They also um, introduce them to each other. And so I actually have a cohort of folks that I met when I was an intern um, where we have kind of progressed together along this journey. And at the last meeting um, I was at, they brought 100 uh, underrepresented students to the meeting um, to give posters and to come, you know, be in community with all of the rest of us. Um, I think part of it is that and then, you know, one of my colleagues that's been working with the AAMC for a long time and is an ophthalmologist is Dr. O'Reese Knight. And, you know, he talks about holistic review 
because we're really having to identify what are the real characteristics that makes a great ophthalmologist. And some of the things that we have solved for previously um, are not what makes a great ophthalmologist. And figuring out exactly what those are and how to be inclusive in the next generation to include folks that will amplify the care towards our populations that are now not getting enough care and to increase that congruence is something that's really important. And so he is talking about how to figure out who should be in that next generation. What are the important pipeline you know, components there? The one thing I wanted to ask you also was you, you wrote a piece about uh, addressing disparities in ophthalmic research. And you wrote something I thought that was, that was very interesting that I wanted to explore with you a little bit. And, and you said you called for increasing, you and your colleagues called for increasing research funding to study health disparities and for researchers from minority groups to particularly fund people from these groups as part of this research. And, you know, there, there were issues you called out, which are, I think are really important, uh, which have to do with the idea that that it seems like that if you look objectively at the funding strategies within the NIH and who gets funded, that there has been a systematic bias uh, against uh, investigators of color. And, you know, this to me was very striking when it came out of the NIH, and I'm not sure whether they fully have addressed it. But there's another side of this was what, when should, so we should correct that for sure, but when should race be considered in funding decisions in terms of the race of the investigator? I, I was trying to get to that from your, your piece. I mean, when, do, when is that legitimate and, and important to be part of the consideration in the funding decision around a particular topic? I don't, you know, I think I appreciate your thoughtfulness, Harlan, because I don't think I ever, you know, have really thought about and made that exact jump. Um, so I think it's important. I think race is important because it influences the questions. Like for me as a black woman, the questions I ask are definitely influenced by my life experience. And, you know, if we think about like Dr. Kamara Jones always talks about the system of advantages and the systems of disadvantages. And there is a certain set of disadvantages that I have endured. Now I'm in an Ivy League institution. There's a certain set of advantages that I have also endured. But I don't ever think I conceptualize kind of how that comes into play or how we would be able to put that into systems. Um, and I think there are ways that are, there are places that are trying to do that. So I am familiar with the Aim Ahead initiative. Are you familiar with this? It's a artificial intelligence initiative um, funded by the NIH, but housed at North Texas to try to increase the underrepresented voices in AI, actually in AI and health research. And the way that they're doing it is that they're partnering with minority serving institutions and trying to build capacity on like a PhD level to be able to advance that science from those perspectives. And so I think that that's a lens that we can use and for places that, you know, predominantly serve, you know, those areas. Um, but I, I really want to make sure that folks have the opportunity to ask their questions. Like currently, if we have the um, an IRIS registry in ophthalmology, and there's only a certain subset of folks that can access that. There's a lot of different reasons for that. 
But part of it is because we know that data, oh, we get to talk about data. And we know that data can generate a lot of revenue. Like I have worked with Optum, you know, database before and, and there's a lot of, you know, value there and you can sell data. And so, you know, I think part of this is, you know, who has access to those data and then who can ask the questions. And I think if you change who can ask the questions and you broaden that pool of who can ask questions of these specific databases, you may end up with, um, a different story going forward, but exactly how you would do that with race, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, we've had conversations on data governance before, which I'm really totally into, and we have to like follow up with that because I think that that's also important. The other end of the data and like um, communities that have been historically excluded and how to include them in not only the data governance but also the profit sharing that comes from data as a way to like build generational wealth i think is also something that's exciting to be able to think about too yeah no i think those are good points just to just to feed in one second howie just because you know when you're in the group and you're talking about like you know should this group be favored in some ways it can often be difficult i'll say from my perspective yeah. look we've got to be honest about what our history is and also where we are today with regard to mm -hmm numbers of investigators, the kind of diversity of voices and, and the perspectives that people bring to the research. So, I mean, I, I sort of think that that this is something to consider and, and it may disadvantage some others in some ways, but it, it's incumbent upon us to create uh, opportunities across a broad swath of, of people of different backgrounds and history. But like, you know, you can't get away from the structural racism in this country that that people have been systematically disadvantaged for years. I mean, it, it, and it, it, even when you don't think it would happen anymore, then you study it systematically and you say it's still happening, still happening. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's it's something that is is fair for us to be able to say that, yeah, we are purposely taking into account the kind of a value that people bring to studies, both from their background and as well as their their scholarship. Of course, the questions have to be good. The science has to be strong, but but given equivalent opportunities, uh, then then we should be leaning and recognizing that one of the goals of the funding is to help create you know diverse group of investigators. I mean, it is. It just simply is. I, I want to um, I want to end up on uh, without forgetting to talk about Eiffel because. Uh, you went to Wharton a few years after I went to Wharton, but you got your MBA there. And my experience is that I, I almost can't find a physician that doesn't have some type of startup. But your startup is very interesting. And maybe you can tell our audience about how it meets a need, why you did it, and what you've learned from it so far. So when I was a new faculty member, I used to wear a full suit to clinic as a retina surgeon. And then I'd pull out this case that had my lenses in it that looked like it got ran over by a truck. And I was a young looking surgeon trying to get people to believe that I could do great surgery on them. And I didn't believe that that inspired confidence, this run over by a truck. So I went on Amazon and I looked to see what I could find. And I couldn't find anything. And you know, the lens case company is vertically integrated. So like they make the cases for the lenses and there were really no other options. And so uh, two years later, I looked again, still couldn't find anything. So then I called my Wharton friends. I said, hey, how do you make something? Uh, and so I started down that path of asking my friends, you know, your ideal lens case, what would it have in it? What would it include? I'm proud to say we just launched our newest product, which is actually our, you know, 
case subspecialty case that has room for all the different lenses. It's secure. It's beautiful. Um, and I think we're. It's a fun space because I am not a drug company, and I'm not a you know I'm not in pharma, and I'm in kind of in fashion, and so I get to be in different rooms. Uh, so I get to be in the business side, but I also don't have a lot of rules about you know what happens when I'm chatting with people about my company and people are very into it so you know i my dream is is to be a you know a leading luxury brand for doctors so we're going to do loops cases and people are always telling me you know what they think it should be and you shouldn't have to you should have to have something that's elegant and you know be a doctor anyway so it's a lot of fun i have you know had events at the academy and lots of different conferences and people are really into it it's um some people like crochet <laughs> but my baby is building eiffel and it's a beautiful beautiful journey and i'll say when i left business school i was like oh i, I chose medicine and i think i thought i would leave it behind but business has permeated so many of the things that I do from like building interventions um, to like thinking about cost-effective strategies for equity to even doing Eiffel. And, and it's just been a beautiful journey and I just love being on it. I'm having a blast. Well, I, I want to say, cause our listeners won't get to see what you look like, but you are elegant and you deserve, and you deserve to have elegance around you. So I appreciate that you're filling that need. I wanna thank you so much for joining us on the Health and Veritas podcast. You, you're an amazing person. Thank you all. Well, that was great. Kristen's amazing. Howie, let's get to the next segment. So what's been on your mind this week? Yeah, so it's a fun thing. You and I both noticed this on, maybe, maybe I noticed it on Twitter, but both of us seem to notice that there was a lot of chatter about this uh, novel technology uh, called ChatGPT, um, which was released just last week. So it's very new. Um, it is. It allows you to basically enter questions or simple instructions, and in a matter of a few seconds to maybe a minute, a fairly well done paper answer is delivered to you. And and what is GPT? GPT stands for Generative pre-trained transformer. It's a type of language model that uses deep learning techniques, machine learning, to generate natural sounding text. So ChatGPT, it's a chatbot that uses a GPT-based model to generate responses to user input. So I was skeptical that this could be anything interesting because, you know, most of my life people have talked about what AI could do and being able to have a conversation with something. But I tried it four different ways. I, I gave it four assignments. I asked it to suggest 10 different uh, topics for our podcast. I asked it to write a letter to an insurance company pleading to cover physical therapy. I asked it to write a short letter at a third grade letter level supporting daily exercise. And I asked it to create a frequently asked question list for diabetics around what they should be thinking about and, and why they should do glucose monitoring. And I'll be honest with you, this blew my mind how good it is. And I'm not gonna waste people's time with all of them, but just to say, they were all equally good in their response, and I'm gonna quickly read you, uh, maybe too quick, but I think you'll get the idea, the insurance company letter. This is generated by a chatbot. 
I am writing to explain why physical therapy is necessary for my patient to 50-year-old man with severe back pain. Physical therapy is an effective treatment for chronic back pain as it can help to improve flexibility, strength, and range of motion. It's particularly important for my patient who has been experiencing severe pain and limited mobility due to his condition. In addition to providing relief from pain, physical therapy can also help to prevent the development of more serious conditions such as muscle atrophy or joint stiffness. By providing targeted exercises and stretches, physical therapy can help to reduce the risk of these complications and improve my patient's overall health and well-being. Furthermore, physical therapy is a cost-effective treatment option as it can often reduce the need for more invasive and expensive interventions such as surgery. By providing coverage for physical therapy, you can help to ensure that my patient receives the care he needs to manage his condition and improve his quality of life. I strongly recommend that you approve coverage for physical therapy for my patient as it is a necessary and effective treatment for his chronic back pain. Thank you for considering my request. And, and so, you know, I just, blown away by this and I was curious to know what you thought I know you played around with it a little bit and just curious to know what your thoughts are on on how far we've come with AI now you know I think this is a historic moment in the in the history of computing and it's because of the way that the application is configured I I, I challenge anyone to take a look you could say like you know write a tweet about dogs you can say you know the yeah. uh, write lyrics to a song about Howie, you know, falling in love using the style of Jay-Z. I mean, you, you can say exactly. anything. And, and what it comes back with is like amazing. Not only that, it's almost instantaneous. People are using this. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna start using this in place of Google search because you wanna know an answer to something? You basically are just querying this thing, but it, it's people using it to write letters. The question is, you know, will it start writing scripts? What, what how will it replace people? But I liken this to, <laughs> Well, plagiarism may be harder to detect under, under these circumstances. I liken it to when Mosaic was released. You know, you finally had an interface yeah. with the internet that allowed you, you know, to, to search the web. And, and people may remember Mosaic coming out in the early 90s as a precursor to, you know, Andreasen was involved in this, you know, was to, yeah. to all the browsers that followed. I've never seen anything like this. And uh, anyway, it, I, it's on OpenAI, you, you, you develop an account, you can go into the, the chat GPT and, and, and give it a try. It's free and and just I, mark my words. This is uh, you, you know this is another moment where we're going to have to figure out how can we handle the technology because it changes everything. You didn't even have to draft that letter. That letter's perfect. Send it. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. And and uh, when I got my frequently asked questions about uh, diabetes monitoring of glucose, I thought to myself. You know, maybe they just found this on someone else's site. So I took the entire text and I ran it through the plagiarism software that Yale purchases commercially just to see like what it was going to find because it does a really good job. Um, and it, you know, it has less plagiarism in, than you know so-called plagiarism than a typical paper would. It has little parts of it where phrases are used, but it's not plagiarized. No, it's, it's generated. It's it's incredible yeah. how it can jump to different styles and and, and its yep. versatility is unmatched. Hey, it's a new world, Howie. It's a new world. It's a new world. It's exciting. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E, that's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie, that's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. -E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. 
aside from Twitter and our podcast. I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management, thanks to our researcher Jenny Tan and to our producer Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.